Welcome to League of Lit, where we discuss books, adaptations, and anything else we wish to talk about and tie it to lit, because we can. <clears throat> now, what we're talking about today, I feel very strongly ties to lit. Um, it was, in fact, a movie before. Yes, this is a reverse, reverse adaptation. Switching it up on you. But the thing about this one is we didn't know that until we started preparing for this episode. Oh, that it was a book? No, I had no idea until... Like, we started talking about maybe doing it, and I was like, is this a book? Because obviously it has its feet in literature, obviously. Mm-hmm. I say that twice. Obviously, obviously. Um, but, like, yeah, I didn't know it was a book until I suggested it, and then I was like, is this a novel? This might be a novel, because I was kind of like, maybe this is based on a novel. It's based on a lot of novels, really. I knew nothing about this one, because, I like, I remember seeing the trailer for it when it came out. But I never bothered to go see it or anything else. Like, it just was not a choice of mine. I mean, I don't think I watched it. Let me, before before we go into all of this craziness, let us just remind you that it is the truth universally acknowledged that we are not a spoiler-free podcast. And if you haven't seen this movie, we're just going to spoil the whole thing for you. The ending is very dramatic. So just be prepared that you will be very spoiled. At the time of this episode being released, it will have been um, out for seven years. So you've had seven years to to maybe see it. Had seven years. If you haven't seen it by now, get ready. Probably won't. <laughs> gonna ruin. I mean, unless I know, this is I your kind of thing. So yeah. Well, I didn't watch this movie until four years ago. Okay. Mostly. It's like the worst thing to say on the planet. Mostly because it had Tom Hiddleston in it. And I was I was in a Tom Hiddleston phase. I own like eight or nine of his movies on DVD. And some of his like, he's done like um, mini series and stuff too. I own pretty much all of them on DVD. Because I was in a phase. Not that I will ever be out of my Tom Hiddleston phase. Because what a man. But like, <laughs> I just was in a phase. Heard this movie was a thing. I was like, oh, this looks cool. Watched it, then I was like, wow, I am alone in my house and it is dark. <laughs> so um, before we go too, for, too much further, today we're going to be talking about Crimson Peak. Uh, it was released October 16th, 2015. Cool. So, um, and it is um, a gothic romance, I guess you would call it. Um, it's by Guillermo del Toro, who is, I would say, probably most notably known for Pan's Labyrinth. I think that's what people would most notably know him for and probably the shape of water as well since yeah, that one won oh, so yeah. many awards at the oscars yeah um and he is a very interesting storyteller for yes. sure if you ever watched anything by guillermo del toro the, the way his brain works it, it's impressive but also concerning every time i see a trailer for one of his movies I have never been inspired to go and watch it. I definitely think he's a very, there's a very specific niche of like film people, like people who particularly love film. Mm -hmm. It's a very specific niche that Guillermo del Toro falls into where like he, unless you, if he really hits that with you, you're not going to be inspired to watch his movies because I genuinely honestly awful to say never seen another game of the tour movie 
I haven't. None either. of his ever. None of his other movies have ever inspired me to watch them. I watched this one because it had Tom Hiddleston in it, and in the end, I actually genuinely liked this one, despite the fact that I still can't watch it in the dark by myself. I can watch it in the dark with somebody else there, but like by myself, I still can't watch this movie in the dark. Mostly because I'm a big John Scary Cat. I don't watch scary movies, and because this movie, I mean, he really falls very heavily into the gothic part of this gothic romance. He, I mean, the whole story is about ghosts, essentially. There's a lot in between, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on, but the whole thing is really genuinely, honestly, about ghosts. But let's kind of, we'll give you an overview, and then we'll, uh, we'll go from there. So this is the synopsis from IMDb. In the aftermath of a family tragedy, an aspiring author is torn between love for her childhood friend and the temptation of a mysterious outsider. Trying to escape the ghost of her past, she is swept away to a house that breathes, bleeds, and remembers. It's really interesting to me that in the synopsis, they notate Dr. Alan McMichael as being her like childhood love, because while there is that sort of tension between the two of them, I'd say mostly on his part, it's to me, it's not really important. And even in the end, I'm like, I don't know what happened with them. They were just, you know, he helped her, but like, I don't really think it was, I guess, important to the story, in my opinion. So full disclosure, I only made it 40 minutes into the movie before I stopped because I really didn't care. That's okay. Um, not the first time and it won't be the last. We're not good at doing something. <laughs> exactly. Um, That's the whole point of this though. Genuinely. Literally, I part of it was part of the reason why I only got 40 minutes in is because I was trying to watch it one night before I had to go into work really early the next morning. And so I watched as much as I could in the set of time. And so I watched pretty much the first 40 minutes covers everything that happens before they get to Crimson Peak. Which is funny because that's what the name of the movie is. Exactly. Crimson Peak. (laughs) Yeah, it does take a long time to get there, genuinely, though. And the movie itself is just under two hours. Will I ever go back and watch the remaining amount of time? Probably not. I mean, the movie is rated R. Yes, everybody should note that, please. (laughs) I I feel like that does need to be noted um, because we do have some people who are not of age to watch that, that listen to our podcast. So, hello. Don't recommend you watching this until you are of a substantial and stable age. Agreed. No, it's definitely not a, a and I'm all, and I'm making that I'm making that call based off of the 40 minutes that I saw. Yeah, because you missed the parts too that I would consider the most uh, inappropriate. It's like I'm sure there's there's plenty that. of inappropriateness. There is a level of graphicness that exists mm-hmm. in this movie, um, but I think before we get too much further in, we should probably go over just. Like, who is in this film? Um, We've already mentioned Charlie Hunnam, who played Dr. Alan McMichael, um, who is our main character's childhood love interest. Except that's really more, he's super interested in her. She's so wrapped up in writing her own novel that she doesn't really know if she's interested in him. She's like, (laughs) she just likes his company. 
<laughs> she just thinks he's a nice guy. Yeah. I'm sure her father would like them to be together, obviously, oh, but full, she definitely is on. like, I'm riding a novel, daddy, leave me alone. Exactly. Um, Tom Hiddleston, we've also mentioned, is in this. He plays Thomas Sharp, who is a well-to-do-ish man. And I say ish because they're the way that the first 40 minutes paints him. And again, all of my opinions are going to be based off of just the first 40. Um, Love that. It's questionable whether or not he actually still has his title. I mean, he's still technically a baronet. I do believe that the title has not gone anywhere. Even if people lose their money, um, and I'm just going based off of like more recent experience with that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, they still tend to keep that title until somebody takes it physically away from them. And it takes a lot to take your title away from you. And so that's where it's like, I don't know a ton about that. So, you know, but it, it looks like there is something wrong with this man, even though everyone's like, Oh, well he has this title. So he must be rich. It's like, well, then why is he over here trying to sell a machine that may or may not work? Listen, he's done a lot of experiments. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we have Jessica Chastain, who plays Lucille Sharp, which is Thomas Sharp's sister. She has a very interesting demeanor in this in this movie. <laughs> Our main character is played by Mia. I'm not going to attempt her last name because I will butcher it. Would you like me to do it? Go for it. It's Mia Wazikowska. Okay. She plays Edith Cushing, who is our main character. She is the aspiring author. And when the movie opens up, it's covering kind of her childhood to get us introduced to her and set us up for where we're actually meeting her. Because yeah. she has had her own ghost encounters after her mother died. And she's written a novel because of that. She's very interested in, in gothic literature because of the encounter with the ghost of her mother not too long after her mother died of some kind of plague. Mm -hmm. I am forgetting what one, but it was like some type of plague type thing. Because they like weren't allowed to like have an open casket or anything like that because of it. So, um, yeah. but I will say... I'm going to notate this because I think it's important. This whole beginning sequence with Edith in bed and she essentially like hears her mother coming down the hall. And then of course you turn and you see the awful, terrifying ghost of her mother. Who is played hall. by Doug Jones. Yes. Who I do want to know this. Because <laughs> they're all, all of the ghosts in this movie are like just the skeletons essentially. Um, and Edith's mother is the only one I will notate that's wearing full clothing. That's actually very important to the story later, which you won't get. You don't get to see it, but yes, it is important. Spoil it for me. Spoil it for me. Oh, I will absolutely spoil it. It's probably a photo. Um, the beginning sequence where Edith's mother comes to her is actually based on a story that Guillermo del Toro's mother told him after her mother died. She apparently had an experience after her mother died when she was a little girl where she was in bed asleep and she woke up because she could hear her mother's skirts rustling down the hallway and it terrified her. 
That's 100% fair. I'll do it. And I think the last character we'll mention, um, we may mention others as we get into the story a little bit more, but um, Edith's father, Carter Cushing, is played by Jim Beaver. And I will say, it's because of what happens to his character in the first 40. That's part of the reason why I had no interest in finishing the rest of it. Oh, yeah, no, he he dies. He dies very badly. He does. And if you have ever seen an episode of Supernatural, then you know full well who Jim Beaver is. He's Bobby. And you know that Bobby Singer would not be murdered that way. Well, Bobby Singer did get murdered that way, though. (laughs) But because of how long he played that one character, I cannot oh, yeah, say no. that it's easy to oh, no, differentiate the two. So on the screen, I'm like, you know that this man's a demon hunter, right? <laughs> but he's not. He's just a like, businessman. This man. is not. I cannot suspend the disbelief that this man would not be able. He's just that, a bumpy businessman. With that straight razor that he was trying to clean up his beard with, would have not been able to kill whatever demon just killed him. I mean, it wasn't a demon. That's probably the problem. <laughs> yes, but getting into the to the story a little bit more. Um, so Crimson Peak is set in, in 1901. It starts in Buffalo, New York. Um, and we meet Edith Cushing, who has lost her mother young, very much believes in ghosts, and is essentially writing a novel that is a ghost story. And I will say, like, her whole experience in – because – once we get to adult Edith, um, she's taking her um, her novel to a publisher that is a friend of her father's um, about the possibility of it getting published. And the whole publisher's issue is that there's no love story. And it felt very reminiscent of um, Joe March. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the 2019 adaptation. She's um, a woman. Why would she not be writing a love story? Right. <laughs> um, and so I feel like there was that level of influence. Um, not necessarily like the 2019 specific, because obviously this movie came out before then. Um, but that was, but that moment in that, in the Little Woman movie was inspired by Louisa May Alcott's own life. Yeah. And and so and that's something that you just see a ton of it's always surprising to people for whatever reason that women don't want to just write about love stories. They may happen, they may exist. You may you may sense the tension does not always mean it's going to happen. Right. And I mean that really uh moves our story along the fact that you know, she's a woman and she ha- isn't writing a love story, but she has great penmanship. And so she decides at that point, well, if I type it, maybe they won't think I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. So then she goes to her father's office, which is where she then meets uh, Sir Thomas Sharp, baronet, who has come to essentially get a loan from Edith's father for his invention that, I mean, I still don't fully understand it, but essentially moves the red clay that is under their home back in England 
mm-hmm. um, out so that it can be utilized, essentially. Yeah. For whatever it, you would it's use that for. It's a mining tool. So it would. I think he was trying to sell it for more than just that specific thing. Um, but that was the example that he had because that's what he had been trying to get on. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course the, the storyline that there is a handsome, rich British man in town. So every woman wants him. Um, but he finds Edith very fascinating because she essentially, because she believes in ghosts because he reads a little bit of her story, which leads us into, you know, the ever-present fight of who's going to get the rich man and, you know, all of this sort of hierarchy of who is the woman that will catch his affection and, and earn the title of what is the female version of a baronet? Baroness. Is it a baroness? Is that what that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. That makes very sense. But who's going to become Baroness Shark? Um... Which leads us then to meet his sister, Lucille, who we've spoken about. And Lucille's character is odd, I think, is a good way to do She's very off. You can tell, I think, right from the moment you first see her sitting at the piano playing it, that there's something wrong. She just feels unnecessarily rigid. Yeah, I mean... With her brother being so charming, you'd think that there would be at least a level of learned charm, and that doesn't seem to exist. I think uh, when you get to the end of the movie, you understand a little bit more why she is the way that she is, um, and why Thomas is the way that he is, um, which a a lot of that has to do with her shielding him from a lot of the bad things that happened at home in their youth. Because you learn at the end of the movie, and again, I won't spoil this for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the movie, you learn that that their father was never home and their mother didn't like them. And so she would lock them in the attic by themselves while she just, like, slept. And, like, did okay. whatever she wanted to. So okay. uh, they very much, and she would, like, beat them with things. And there's a lot of, like... And you actually learn more of that background in the book as well. You get to see a lot more of their childhood. But she was very, very strict and rigid and um, so much so that I think, not I think, but in truth, um, Lucille gained that that rigid mindset so much so that she convinced Thomas that they should murder their mother. Um, and they did. They axed her to death in the bathtub. <laughs> Which you don't see in the movie. You're welcome. But you do see the ghost of her. Mm. With, the, with the beautiful axe mark in her head. And so... And you do learn in the movie that there was like a whole investigation into it. And they pretended that they weren't at home when it happened. And, you know, they had a, a, a believable enough story that nobody questioned it. People still think it's odd, but nobody questions it. You know, they had money. They were rich. You know. I don't think DNA and fingerprinting was there. Oh, no, absolutely not. So so Lucille's 
demeanor makes a lot more sense by the end of the movie. And you learn a lot more, too, at the end of the movie about their relationship. We're going to get into that in a minute. Um, and so you sort of see that Thomas and Lucille are plotting when he decides that he has chosen Edith. He chooses Edith. And you're like, what does that mean? <laughs> so I will say something about this um, the whole choosing of Edith thing. Obviously, there's a level of intrigue that is supposed to exist. The way that the story is told, you're supposed to want to understand why he chose he chooses her. I did not care. As will be established probably several more times. There was another person that he was rumored to have already chosen. And uh, there was some sort of event that was being held. Um, and I don't remember who was hosting it. I think it may have been Alan so Michael's mom. Mom, yeah, because it's his sister that has been rumored to be chosen. But Edith wasn't going to go. Was not going to go to this event. She wasn't really a big fan of going to these kinds of events. And literally, Thomas Sharp waits until Dr. McMichael comes and gets Edith's dad and takes him to the event to show up and persuade Edith to come to this event. Yes, because he's lost. My use of quotations there is great. Um, It's extremely strong. He's lost. It makes no sense. Well, welcome to the mind of Thomas Sharp. It makes no sense. Is I think just his mo. I don't. I because you learn in the end why he chose Edith specifically, but to Lucille, this is like, wait a second, you've already chosen this one girl. Now you're choosing this other girl. So I think they have this plan, and now Thomas is trying to figure out how to deviate from the plan without Lucille's involvement. So I don't think he knows how to do that. I think Lucille is definitely the mastermind. And so he's like, I will deviate from the plan. I will be lost. <laughs> and we're all like, that makes no sense. You could have just asked somebody. Like, you also, didn't have to come all the way to her. It's 1901 New York. There weren't that many houses. <laughs> like... You could have found yourself to the house without stopping by Edith. And very specifically, you stopped by Edith. Like, how did you know that's where she lived? Mm-hmm. It's not It's not adding up, Thomas. But I think that's supposed to show his deviation from their original plan. Which is why Lucille looks so concerned when he shows up. With this other woman on his arm. She's like, who is this? <laughs> Not part of the plan. Um, Edith's father finds out some unsavory information about Thomas and Lucille. And essentially says, Get, stay away from my kid. And you's going to leave. That's how it's going to work. Here's some money. Get out of my sight. <laughs> Never come back here again. Mm-hmm. Which goes, you know, super well. Because they're like, yeah, of course we'll do that. We'll absolutely do that. Well... He just happens to end up dead the next morning. Happens to end up dead with his skull crushed in completely. 
from a literally like half his head sink. is bashed in from a bathroom sink and then they're just like well he fell i'm sorry i have never in my life seen somebody break off a corner of a sink by falling by falling nobody's head is that hard mm-hmm. well i don't know but <laughs> his head was definitely not hard enough to break off a corner of the sink without some severe force behind it and of course we do know that he gets murdered because we do see it happen we yes. don't see who does it but we do see him get murdered very brutally. It's always, always a scene that I'm like, oh, I'm gonna do something else. I'm gonna look away. This is very aggressive because I don't really like the gory stuff. Yeah, I will say that I, I, I guessed that that was what was going to happen. I mean, he's in the bathroom alone, and you're like, this man's about to die. Well, even before then, because um, there was just something about everything. It's like, yeah, sure, we'll leave. We'll take your money, and we'll leave. But you're not going to survive, sir. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, the way they gave up was so easy. Specifically Lucille. The way she's just like, okay, Thomas, be quiet. I got this. Mm -hmm. We will leave. And you're like, that feels like a lie. This feels like a setup. And of course it was. And so in her despair of now losing her father, Edith marries Thomas Sharp. And thus, Kara ended the movie. It is so stupid. I'm sorry. Who marries someone while they're in the middle of grieving their own parents? Unless you were previously engaged and that person has been with you for a lot longer. It goes to that whole concept of marrying a man you just met. You shouldn't do it. You shouldn't, but we were very into that once upon a time. I can't say that I ever was, but... I mean... <laughs> As a society, we were very into that once upon a time. So while the movie ended for Kara, it did in real life go on. <laughs> please, spoil the rest of this for me and I'll interject any opinions I have based on what yes, you tell me. Yes, please do. It's going to be really fun. So essentially what happens next is Lucille goes back to Crimson Peak, Thomas and Edith. I don't know if you consider it a honeymoon. They have to travel to England. I don't think I would consider that a honeymoon just because it sounded awful. Well, because I would have felt like with Edith being the only child. That she would be expected to stay. She would have probably inherited because this was America. She did. One but thing. that's the thing. She inherited everything. So why but, move across? Because he's British. And he's a baronet in England. And his home so? is in England. And technically speaking, back then you moved where your husband was. I mean, yes, Despite her however, inheriting everything, she was still technically at that point her husband's property and everything she owned was her husband's property. I understand that. But at the same time, there were so many other aspects that just felt modern about Edith. Yeah. But that I think it would have it would have felt more in her character to stay and run her father's business well i don't think they would have let her do that but like have a heavy hand in it i get the impression that she wasn't allowed to do much more than get married um she could only write a book because of who her father was but now she has all of this money but she has nobody to be the man in her life if she didn't get married there'd be no man she has nobody to run her money for her, which is what you were supposed to have. I mean, it was 1901. We were still yeah, in that era yeah. of 
women were men's property. It's unfortunate, but women were men's property and they were expected to do what the men in their lives told them to do. And when there was not a man in their life, most of the time, they were just kind of shunned from society, which I feel like Edith in the end would have probably preferred. But they were just kind of shunned from society and looked at as crazy spinsters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think she, you know, was unlucky that she lived in that era. But you also, I think, at least I did, get the sense that she's still in quite a bit of mourning and she doesn't know what to do with it. So she marries Thomas because he's there and he's kind to her. <coughs> so we get to Crimson Peak, this, I, I would call it beautiful, but it's really not, um, this like mansion castle on a hill in the middle of nowhere with nothing around it, gothic castle thing that's sitting on a, a giant hill made of blood red clay that in the winter when it snows looks like there's blood seeping into the snow. And that's delightful. Isn't it delightful? That's why they call it Crimson Peak. So creative naming. I know. We're just so fancy. I mean, people are not people are not known for being they're like, look at that old house. Let's call it something stupid. Um, <laughs> especially if you don't live there. You know, you're just gonna give it a stupid name. Which is essentially, you know, from the outside, you're like, wow, this is, you know, it's old. It's a little worn. Okay? And you go inside, and you're like, wow, it's old. It's dirty. Obviously, we have no maids. Confusing. Um, It's very worn. There's a big hole in the ceiling. And really, genuinely, the house is supposed to be, like, a metaphor for the, like, moral collapse that the Sharp family has gone through. From their, you know, father not being around, their mother being who she was and being abusive, and then her children turning into crazy people who murdered her. And you, I mean, again, it's that very gothic thing of everything is very dark except for the one thing that is good, which would be Edith, who dresses in a lot of colors and wears a lot of white, next to the sharks who both wear a lot of black and a lot of dark, you know, there's a lot of symbolism Mm-hmm. in everything that we do in this in this type of uh, world. But so you get to sort of see this very odd relationship now that Edith and Thomas have. Because, of course, in the beginning, you, you, you know, you sort of see them start to do whatever they're doing. You know, you get the impression that Thomas really likes her, and you get the impression that Edith at least somewhat returns his affection. Mm-hmm. And then when they get to Crimson Peak, while there's still elements of that, Thomas becomes very cold in the aspect that, like, doesn't really sleep in the same bed as Edith most nights. She'll wake up and he's not there in this big creepy house, <laughs> in this big cold creepy house. And you sort of see this power play between Edith and Lucille, because at this point, Lucille should be turning over the running of the house to Edith because that's how it worked. Right. She's the, now the sister of Thomas and Edith is now the lady of the house, but you don't really get that dynamic because Lucille essentially says the house has a lot of twists and turns and there are rooms that you shouldn't go into. So I'll keep the keys and I can kind of walk you through it. Walk you right over a cliff. Maybe. <laughs> right. And you also notice that, Lucille really doesn't let the two of them be alone, Thomas and Edith, despite the fact that they're married. Obviously, Thomas isn't sleeping 
with her. He's also not sleeping with her. He just find it all really odd. He's still working on his mining thing. So at this point, he's funding it with the money that Edith is getting from her inheritance. Mm-hmm. Which is what they wanted all along. Well, some kind of inheritance. Um, up until he and Edith go off to get some supplies... There's a snowstorm. They get snowed in at essentially like a spare room that this, he's like a woodworker has at his home where they are then intimate for the first time. We did tell you it was rated R. Um, um, So don't watch it if you are not old enough. And then they come home and Lucille is like stark raving mad over it. She's very like, Lady Haversham from um, Great Expectations. She's just, she's crazy. That's my best. That's probably my best <laughs> explanation of her is that she reminds me a lot of Lady Haversham. Okay. Um, and at this point, Edith has already been having these sort of episodes with other ghosts in the home, which are then all like these skeletal red creatures who like have like these long fingers and come out of the floors and it's very creepy. I don't like scary movies, but it's important to note that the ghosts aren't there to hurt Edith. Mm-hmm. They're always there to warn while she may be frightened of them because why would you not be frightened of this big skeletal like thing? That's it's got not its, like, like they're Casper the friendly ghost. And- <laughs> <laughs> they are definitely not Casper the friendly ghost. That is facts. Those are facts. Era. They're like, scary and they point at her with their long, spindly fingers and <laughs> tell her to, you know, her mother told her originally at the beginning, which I should have notated this earlier, but literally the one thing her mother tells her is to beware of Crimson Peak. When she was like, what, eight or nine? Mm-hmm. Her mom tells her, beware of Crimson Peak. Obviously, she forgot. Because, <laughs> like, she goes to Crimson Peak, but go off. I think that's another thing that's like a little hard to grasp. It's it's hard to really understand why, because her mother or- warns her so early on. Like, and I'm like, is what are you supposed to do? Ask every man what the name of your house like, is. Like, forget, because they even talk about Crimson Peak when they're in America, because they say it's their home. And I think you, you, she, you see her sort of have, like, a moment. But I'm like, did you, like, block it out, Edith? Was it that? I mean, it was scary. But, like, was it that scary? You just blocked it out? You were like, nope, none for me. So, I mean, she should have known. But she didn't know. So she's had all these experiences in the home. She's having problems with Lucille. Thomas is vague and weird and a little cold until they get to that point of, you know, when they do the bad thing. And then he also, he's still cold after that because he's come home to Lucille, who is upset that they were alone. Do we have any understanding of why? Yes. So, towards, we'll get to the end of the the actual movie now. Um, Essentially, what you start to see happening is Edith's health deteriorates. You're trying to figure out why. You're like, oh, she's just, maybe she's just sick because there's a big hole in the ceiling that nobody will fix. My whole thought process, this whole movie, I'm just like, fix. The hole in the ceiling. I don't understand. We have all this money and we can't fix this hole. Because it almost feels like the whole house is already dead. It almost feels to me like Thomas and Lucille are already dead. 
Like, they're already ghosts. Mm-hmm. That's the vibe that I get from the whole thing because the house is so dead. I mean, there's dead bugs, there's dust, there's spider webs, there's, I mean, the whole house just feels like it's been dead for years, which I think is probably some sort of metaphor for their souls or whatever, but. I'm sure. <laughs> you know, metaphors in books, we could do it all day. Um, but so Edith is started getting sick and she finds she starts to find like all of these old different things like there's a dog that shows up that Thomas and Lucille are both like what is this dog here and at one point literally Lucille is like I thought you got rid of that dog and Thomas is like I let it go like I just I thought it would die and you're like what this puppy this cute little dog you just let it go so they keep the dog you're like, where did this dog come from? They obviously know this dog. So this used to be their dog. Is this a ghost dog? What's happening? Um, and then she finds like old recordings that would have been done on like a super old, like I can't remember what the name of those things are right now with the big horn thingy attached to it. Photographs. Yeah. Cool. I'm glad I knew the word for that. Um, but she finds like these old recordings that were done on the phonograph because you used to be able to record on them. And they're like these little long cylinder things. And she starts to listen to them. And it's this woman, whose name I cannot remember, I feel bad, um, talking about how everything here is strange. Everything at Crimson Peak is very strange. She's living in this sort of weird world. She doesn't know what's going on with Thomas. Lucille is very odd. And as the recordings go on, she says, don't drink the tea that Lucille gives you. She's poisoning you. Like, she was essentially making a record of things that was happening to her that are now happening to Edith. And then Edith is starting to find other women's names. She ends up in the attic and finds old photos of other women, essentially like wedding photos of Thomas with several other women. And she's learned that this is something that they've done over and over and over again. Money grab, been cool. Yeah, because he's been in Spain getting a loan. And when he was in Spain, he met this woman named Enola. And they got married. And then Enola just died mysteriously. And, like, so he's been... And Edith's father mentions it at the beginning of the movie. All of the different countries. Like, he's been to Spain. He's been to France. He tried in London. Like, he's married all of these women for their money. And they've all died mysteriously. Mm-hmm. And so then you start to realize that these are the ghosts that are showing up. And then, of course, there's a woman, there's a ghost with a baby, and you're like, what's happening? It's a ghost, and then she has a baby ghost, and you're freaked out by both of those things, because they're both freaking creepy. Mm-hmm. If you ever want to be creeped out, just look up the ghost from Crimson Peak. It's very scary. Um, and you can see that they've all been murdered in different ways, because you can just see it on their bodies. Essentially, none of them are clothes, which I'm sure there's, again, some sort of... There's probably metaphor. a purpose, but it's mm, I'd have it's to gross. speak to Guillermo del Toro, and I think that'd be a weird conversation, so I'm not going to. So, Edith stops drinking the tea, but she's still pretty sick. She's been, she's been slowly poisoned over time by this nasty-tasting tea. So, like, honestly, if it was nasty the first time, I'm not going to continue to drink it. You will never convince me to drink it. And so we get to what I would say would be like the climax of the film, like 10 minutes before it ends. Edith wakes up in bed alone. She's coughing up blood. Like, she's obviously very sick. Mm -hmm. 
she hears music coming from the attic, so she goes upstairs. This is when it starts to get really weird. Um, as if it wasn't already really weird. She goes upstairs to the attic and finds Lucille and Thomas doing things you shouldn't do with your sibling. Cool. Best way I can say that. So then she's, of course, upset. Still very sick. Naturally. Lucille, Lucille follows her, you know, talking about this is who I am. This is who he is. You know, Edith is learning that they've killed all of these women. They did kill their mother. You know, of course, she's been told, you know, we don't know what happened. We just came home and she was dead. Um, and then in a mad rage, instead of killing her the way that they've killed everybody else, Lucille pushes her off the banister. A good, I'd probably say like 30 or 40 feet, but it's really hard to tell. Um, in the movie, into the center of the the main entryway, onto that big pile of snow that's just there from the hole that nobody will fix. And it, it sounds like she hurts herself pretty bad. But at this point, you've got somebody banging on the door to get inside. It turns out that that's Dr. Alan McMichael, who has come to England after learning a lot of weird stuff has happened at Crimson Peak, and he's worried about his friend. So he's there. She's just fallen. They're claiming, oh, goodness, she fell. We don't know what happened. She was just, she's been so sick, you know? So then Thomas and Lucille go to get some things to help Edith, you know? And Edith is like, Alan, we got to go. We got to get out of here. Lift me up. I don't care. We're going to walk. I'm going to wear this nightgown. We got to go because they're bad people. They've killed a bunch of people. I got to get out. Mm-hmm. So then they try to leave. Doesn't go well at all (laughs) Lucille is essentially like Thomas you stab this man or I'm gonna stab this man and Thomas who at this point I think genuinely somewhat feels affection for Edith I'm not gonna say he loves her just because that feels very aggressive for what's all about to happen um, I think he likes honestly with the with the whole arc it feels aggressive to jump there anyways. That, right? Truly. So he essentially goes up to Alan to stab him and asks Alan, where's the best place to do it so that I won't kill you? Because Alan's a doctor. He's going to know. Thomas is like, cool, I'm going to do this. We're going to figure this out. I'm going to get y'all out of here. So he stabs Alan, pretending that he's stabbing him to death. Lucille, very proud, because she's crazy. Right? Because she's crazy. 100%. And then there's sort of this crazy mad dash where all three of them are doing different things. You got Alan, who's kind of in the entryway, who's pretending to be dead until he doesn't have to pretend to be dead anymore. Lucille takes Edith upstairs to sign over her money to them, essentially, because that's what they've done with everybody. They've just convinced them to sign all of their money over to them once they're dead. Like, what? you know, their will. Once I'm dead, these people mm-hmm. get all my money. Um, Edith stabs Lucille, I believe in the hand with the pen. Again, this is another thing that I have a hard time watching. Goes to get away. Thomas is there and is like, I'm going to get us out of here. We're going to be okay. Just, I'll take care of Lucille. Don't worry about it. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think anybody's going to convince Lucille that Thomas just gets to ride off into the sunset with Edith. So Thomas goes to talk to Lucille and Lucille's like, you're in love with her. It's supposed to be us, but like, go off. You're in love with her. Lucille's very angry. She's very angry. Of course, because it's the only thing that she's ever had love and affection for. 
is her brother, which is mm-hmm. it's a lot. When you get to that part of the movie, I, I remember the first time I ever watched it, I was like, no, I gotta go. I gotta finish it because I just need to finish it. But like, why are we here? Which I don't honestly think there was ever really any love on Thomas's part other than the sisterly affection. I just think Thomas. He didn't, didn't know any better. He didn't know, know any, any different. Better. Yeah, he didn't know any sort of different life. He just knew that this was his sister and he loved her and he wanted to protect her. Mm-hmm. And that society would never deem it okay. So while he's there trying to convince her, you know, we can be a family still. But I love Edith. Lucille is not happy. And she stabs him uh, with a letter opener several times in his chest. And then once through the cheek, which he pulls out, which is not a great moment. Highly don't recommend watching anybody pull a knife out of their face. So she kills her brother, who she's in love with. And when she realizes that she's murdered her brother, she gets this crazy rage. And then, you know, you cut to Edith, who's just standing at their little elevator that they have in their house that, you know, goes up and down. She's like, uh, Thomas, is that you? Out flies Lucille, who's in a mad rage after just killing her brother with a knife in her hand. I gotta go. That's how I feel. I gotta go. So then they fight. Edith ends up in the elevator. She goes all the way down to the, I guess, like their basement, which is where all the clay is in these big old vats. She takes Alan down there with her. We're going to get out of here. It's going to be okay. I got to kill Lucille. She's hiding from Lucille. She and Lucille are sort of having these moments. They each have weapons. There's a lot of just random fighting in different places. Edith climbs up the contraption that Thomas was working on to get out of the mining area and back out to, you know, just what would be like their yard, I guess, their land. And then she and Lucille are fighting in the, the crazy snowstorm, you know, and Lucille's at this moment essentially ready to kill Edith. She's going to do it. She's just killed her brother, who she was in love with because of this woman. This woman deserves to die. That's her whole thought process. Mm-hmm. And then Thomas's ghost shows up. And distracts Lucille enough that Edith can whack her over the head with a shovel. Essentially, like, pushes her spine down and kills her. Cool. And that's the end of Lucille. Edith and ghost Thomas have a weird moment. And then he, you know, floats into the wind. Because he has been absolved of everything that he's done, I guess. Who knows? Because he tried to save her that one time. He has been absolved, I guess. That's confusing. It's confusing. Then Edith and, and Alan leave Crimson Peak. And Edith's voiceover happens, you know, about ghosts are real, this much I know. There are things that tie them to a place very much like they do us. Some remain tethered to a patch of land, a time and date, a spilling of blood, a terrible crime. But there are others, others that hold on to an emotion, a drive, loss, revenge, or love. Those, they never go away. And the last scene in the movie is of Lucille's ghost sitting at the piano in Crimson Peak and playing the piano. Because she's now stuck there. Mm-hmm. And that's Crimson Peak. Carrie, what are your thoughts on the ending? From the get-go, Lu- Lucille is her own brand of crazy. And she looks crazy, acts crazy. But it's played off as standoffish. 
I don't know that it entirely makes sense, but obviously it's just, it's this big elaborate con. So essentially this is a bloody gory con film. Disguising itself as a gothic romance. Yes. I will accept that. And I would say it's really more of a con film than it is a gothic romance because while yes, you, you get the, the redemption arc of Thomas Sharp and his... I think we're going to put redemption in some quotations there. It is. It's, it's a loose term. Um, but he, considering he is not tied to Crimson Peak as a ghost, there is a level of redemption that happened. Mm-hmm. Because while he may have been accessory to, he was not the actual murderer, which was Lucille. And so... Yes. So he gets to have a different form of punishment. It does not involve being tied to Crimson Peak for the rest of his life. Or Lucille is tied to Crimson Peak for the rest of her life as form of punishment because she has to be there with all of the other ghosts that are still yeah. tied there. Which, who's to say that all the ghosts are still there to make her life After. a living hell? Yeah. Because maybe the only reason why the ghosts remained was to warn whoever was next. Yeah. And now that that's done and there's not going to be any more killing. Maybe there will not be a be next time. Yes. Yeah. Maybe they all get to be free. Their unresolved business has been resolved. Because that's what they always <gasps> say. That's the reason why ghosts stick around. In a way, Edith kind of seems a little, maybe, maybe a stronger version. Potentially. Now, this is, this is going to sound like a stretch. So bear with me for a second. Like it, like it. Of Catherine Moreland. And this okay. is the more extreme side of the Tilneys. But instead of General Tilney being the axe murderer, <laughs> maybe Frederick, Captain Tilney. Because he always struck me as one who would. Oh, yeah, he'd murder somebody. Since it's children and not spouse. No, because in Northanger yeah. Abbey, it's... It's... um. Like, General Tilney was just cold, and that kind of deteriorated the will to live for their mom, who was sick. Yeah. So that was Crimson Peak. Yeah. I personally don't feel like thanking anybody, because I don't really care for any of us to exist. (laughs) However, as it is our custom and our tradition. And people put in hard work. (laughs) Yes, we we will thank everybody who was involved their hard work because it exists and there are people who do like this it's just not me so of course big thanks to everybody involved in the production and writing of this movie as much as it was not Kara's thing it's still pretty good uh Guillermo del Toro the entire cast and crew um the people who do the costuming excellent job excellent job coloring excellent job um this this movie is Pretty. And of course, uh, as always, big thanks to Zachika because he keeps us pretty. And a big thanks to all of you for tuning into League of Lit. Make sure you follow us at League of Lit Podcast on Instagram. If you have any suggestions for an episode, feel free to leave a comment on leagueoflit.tumblr.com.